So this morning, I want to ask you a question. It is simply this. Maybe you haven't thought about it in a while. But what is your favorite attribute of God? If you could take just one thing about God and you say, Frank, this is the thing I like about God best, what might that be? Now, on one hand, we'd have to be kind of careful how we ask that because there's no bad side of God. Is there an amen in the house? God appreciated your amen right then. And all of his attributes are perfect. We know that. He's perfect love, perfect justice, perfect holiness, perfect uh, mercy in our lives, everything that we can imagine. It's not like asking what's your favorite color. Mine happens to be navy blue. What is your favorite food? Mine happens to be anything southern, ma'am. Uh, you know, what is your favorite uh, movie? Mine would be The Born Identity. Or what is your favorite sports team? And win or lose, mine is always the Ohio State Buckeyes. And uh, those are just some personal preferences that could change over time. The truth of the matter is, just between us, I don't think Deborah's here, so don't tell her. But my food preferences change to where I am. If it's early in the morning, like yesterday morning, I had mush for breakfast at a local restaurant. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was almost as good as fried okra for dessert. It, it was a wonderful time yesterday morning. Yesterday afternoon, I had the privilege of joining with some friends, and we had city barbecue, and we had canes, and we had Subway, and we had everything. And that was my favorite food at that point in time. So sometimes those food desires can change like that. And I like the color navy blue or metallic blue because that's the color car that I drive. But the truth of the matter is I also drive a red car, and I love red. So if I'm in the red car, that's my favorite color. Dave, you should smile as many cars as you own. That when I'm in a blue car, that's my favorite color. You know, it just depends upon the moment and the thing that's going on. I, I mentioned the born identity because I like the action. But the truth of the matter is there was a time that my favorite movie was The Chariots of Fire. And over years, you know, those, those things can change from time to time. And I'm always with the Ohio State Buckeyes. I haven't changed that a bit. But, but I think you could easily apply that to the attributes of God. Even though they're, all the attributes are good, there are times in your life and times in my life where we're so excited about that particular attribute of God that helps us so much. There are moments where you cling to God's mercy. Is that man that went over the cruise ship for 15 hours in the ocean clung to that life preserver and wasn't going to let go of it this weekend? And there are times that we need God's mercy. Is there an amen in the house? There are other times in our lives where you're just overwhelmed by a sense of God's majesty. Do you remember the song, Majesty, Worship His Majesty? Have you ever just gotten all alone in your bedroom? Nobody, you don't have to say it. I know you're Baptist at heart. But you've gotten alone and you had a spiritual fit. You got so blessed by God, worshiping His majesty. You went Pentecostal in your heart and you praise Him. And you become like Dwight Moody where he had to say, Lord, please stay your hand. I can't take your blessings any longer. And I hope you have those experiences from time to time where you worship his majesty and the attribute of God is so wonderful to you that way. Then there's the attribute of holiness and at times we need to have that conviction of God's holiness come in our lives even as believers that convicts us of sin, that convicts us of stepping the wrong way and reminding ourselves that this world is not our compass but it is the word of God and it is the holiness of God and we're seeking a holy God that way. And still other times you may just swim in the ocean of God's love. And even when evil happens on the earth, 
Even when evildoers do such things as murder or stealing or anything you can imagine, there's somewhat a salving bomb in your heart in knowing that God is the just ruler of the universe. And in the end, God's will will be carried out. And all this is a long response to the simple question, what's your favorite attribute of God? But after going through all of that, I want you to think with me for a moment about what the most outstanding attribute of God may be, and that is God's sovereignty. Many of you that are older, and that's a few of you in this room, may remember watching that pre-church program on Saturday evenings called Saturday Night Live. And one of the characters in that show was a fellow by the name of Chevy Chase. And he used to introduce himself by going, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. Don't you imagine that God in heaven wants to say to us sometimes, hey, I'm God, and you're not. Just a reminder of who he is and who we are. And the very rock-solid truth of the sovereignty of God gives each of us as believers great peace in our heart. You say, Frank, what does it mean, the sovereignty of God, or that God is sovereign? It simply means this in the vernacular of a lay person. It means that God is in charge of all things at all times in every situation. There is never a time that God is at a loss. that We have to call upon him. And to know that God is boss means that he's the undisputed boss. He is the master of the universe. He knows what is going on. He's doing everything in charge the way he wants it to be. And here's my question for you if you don't believe that. If God is not sovereign, then what is God? Is he just joining the ranks of these hundreds of millions of other pagan gods that people chase after and worship in this life of existence? The truth of the matter is that God's sovereignty answers the biggest question of all, and that is who is in charge here? Today we see an example in Genesis chapter 41 in the life of Joseph as we continue on with him of a young man who embraced and understood and even walked into the sovereign will of God and trusted him in that situation. And in this study in Genesis that we've been on, asking crucial questions, we've covered questions like, do you know why you were born? Do you know who you are? Do you know why you are here? And today we're going to come with the question, uh, how big is your God? Last week we talked about, are you willing to wait for God? There's no other Bible doctrine more precious to you and to me. And I'm not going to teach a a lesson on the doctrine of God. But trust me when I say that, if you can rest in that knowledge, that God is in charge of everything that happens in the sovereignty of God, it's so amazing. In fact, you can find it throughout the Bible on almost every page. Notice on the screen, Job understood it in Job 23. He said, but he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. Job understood that he cannot demand anything from God. In and of himself, he has no power to change the awful condition he's in. And you remember his awful condition, don't you? He lost all ten of his children. Sometimes we weep when there's one family member lost, another family member lost, but all ten of his children... His friends that supposedly came to encourage him did nothing but discourage him. His wife, that's another story. (laughs) But God did what he wanted to do in Job's life, and Job was powerless to oppose that. In fact, in the last chapter of Job, notice in verse 2 how Job brings it to a conclusion. He says, I know that you can do all things, God. No plan of yours can be thwarted. 
this introduces the final chapter of Job and it comes after God's given him a theology lesson and a final exam on the creation who has set everything in order and you remember Job flunked that thing in spades. He couldn't answer a single question and now he's thoroughly humbled. He confesses that God is all powerful and he does what he wants and no one can stand against him. That's why when we're facing a struggle... I know we want to write our uncle or write dear Abby or appeal to the courts, but first and foremost, we should run to God. God, at the end of the day, you're in charge of my business. You're in charge of my relationships. You're in charge of my health. You're in charge of my thought life. And I ask you, God, to help me think about me the way you think about me. And the confession led Job to deep repentance for his foolish questioning of God's plan. In fact, the psalmist David said it so tremendously in the 115th of Psalms when he said, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. It's pretty clear. The Lord of the universe does whatever pleases him. And what pleases him is to have a personal relationship with you and me. More than anything, God loves loves people more than anything. For God did so love the world so much that he did send his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but we will have everlasting life. And whenever I read this verse, I want to say, any questions? God does what pleases him. And in Romans, the apostle Paul, giving the doxology after giving a great defense of the gospel, says in the 11th chapter of Romans these words. It's almost like an an actor It's so beautiful and given so well. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And let's say that last word together. Amen. And that comes at the very end of Paul's declaration. That, that God, Paul's saying that God's answer to sin is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his presentation for God's future plan for Israel is also. And no one could have foreseen how God would react to human rebellion when it happened in the garden. Because no one gives advice to God. God himself is sovereign as we said. And God's never in debt to anyone for any reason. Everything is from him. Everything is through him, everything is to him, and he alone gets glory for it. So when we come to Genesis chapter 41, and I've appreciated you staying with me these weeks in the life of the Joseph family, we find Joseph in this chapter in prison. He is in jail, and he has been in jail for two long years doing hard time, and it appears that he's hit this incredible dead end. He's been betrayed, you know that, by his brother. He's been sold as a slave not once but twice in a short amount of time. He was falsely accused of rape. He's thrown into prison where he's forgotten by a fellow inmate that he had befriended and gave him great advice that he was going to be free and move forward. Joseph helped him in a big way. And then Joseph did something very human, very Frankie-ish. Joseph said to the guy, when you get out of here, would you remember me? Don't you think that's a fair question to ask? I've helped you. Now, would you help me? Would you just turn around and and, and do the same thing for me? Would you remember me? And I'm sure the man solemnly promised him, Oh, Joseph, you've given me such good news. I'm absolutely going to remember you. But he didn't. 
he got out and he got back to his old life and he promptly forgot Joseph. And the truth of the matter is, there have been times I've forgotten to give people appreciation for things that they have done. Maybe you've experienced that. And maybe this guy didn't forget on purpose. But what that guy didn't know and what Joseph didn't know is that God wasn't ready for that guy to show appreciation to Joseph yet. God had a bigger plan and a greater plan that was going to come. But in one sense, it doesn't matter what Joseph did because every day in prison, if you can imagine that, will be dull and monotonous all at the same time. Country singer Johnny Cash expressed it best in his song with the lyrics, I'm stuck in Folsom prison. And then he says these words, and time keeps dragging on. That's undoubtedly what Joseph was feeling in his heart. And he sits and he waits and he wonders, am I ever going to get out of jail? And I have to believe humanly that he asked himself this question at least once, maybe a day. Why, God, did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this from my brothers, from Potiphar's wife, from the butler that didn't remember me like he said he was going to? Joseph's life almost seems like two steps forward and then three steps backward. He's just messing up. He's not messing up, but he's falling back all the time. You've heard the phrase, prison time is hard time. We all come to moments like that sooner or later in our lives when we become prisoners of whatever situation has a hold on us. So much of what goes on around us during those times seem to make little sense. Why, God, is this happening to my marriage? Why is this happening to my finances? Why is this happening to my body? Why am I going through these things? Uh, it's just there are things we don't understand, the mysteries of life. Why does one child live and another child die? Why is one family hit with seemingly endless trial after trial after trial? Why did this person decide to walk away from their marriage when this person over here going through the identical type of circumstance decided to stay with their marriage? Why did this car wreck cripple the one person in the car and the other person in the same car walked away scot-free with no injuries? The list goes on and on and on of, of things that we can ask why. Why was this person promoted and this person passed over? Why do some people really genuinely want to get married but never find the right person? Even though their heart is open to that, it just seems like it doesn't work out. And most of the time, we can't see the clear answer to questions like that. Deep questions that can keep us up at night. We barely get a glimmer of all that God is doing to us and through us and for us. We're like little kids, and I had written down a term that I wanted to use today, looking through a keyhole. And then I remembered there are no longer keyholes. You have to remember skeleton keys, where you could look through the little keyhole, and you think you're getting a good vision. How many of you remember a keyhole? Please raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. And, and you look through that little thing, and you thought you were seeing the whole world, yet you know you're just getting a small prism of everything that's out there. And when we look through the keyhole of life thinking we don't understand everything, God says, oh, come look in the windowpane. Come outside and look at the universe. See how much I'm in control of all of this. So Joseph's experience is a case in point of this. But here's what he's about to discover. This is the eureka moment of Joseph's life. He's about to discover why he has, in fact, spent two years in prison and that those two years were not wasted. And some of you going through hard time right now may think that God is wasting that time, that, that there's no reason for what you're going through. But they, 
the, the, maybe this morning is a time we will understand that God is preparing you for something he's going to do incredibly in your life. And although the chapter we're looking at, I'm just going to skim the high points of it for today. It's a long chapter. There are 57 verses in this chapter. But all 57 of them can be summarized in four, four words, and that is dreams, interpretation, a plan, and a promotion. You see, Pharaoh had two dreams. Joseph gave him the interpretation. Joseph gave him the plan, and Pharaoh gave him a promotion. So in this chapter, we see Joseph in a short amount of time going from the prison to the palace. You know in the book of Revelation where it says these things must come, sh come about shortly, quickly? And everyone thinks, well, Lord, if you meant quickly, why has it been 2,000 years and you haven't come back yet? What those verses were implying is that when it begins to take place, it will happen very quickly. And for Joseph, the things that were about to take place were going to take place in a matter of 24 hours. He is going to go from the prison of being a shag-headed inmate to royalty standing before the greatest man in the most powerful country on the planet at that time. And if we stand back and get a bird's eye view of chapter 41, we see that ultimately it's an unlikely path that led Joseph from the prison to the palace. Let's talk about some of the signs of the sovereignty of God that we can see in this chapter. On the back of your worship guide, just four things I want you to jot down, one word each. But beneath each one, I have another phrase. If you can write fast enough, I'd love for you to get it. Number one, Pharaoh had two dreams. But beneath it, I wish you would write this, God gave Pharaoh two dreams. Pharaoh didn't just have two dreams. God gave Pharaoh two dreams. And you remember what they are. They're two bizarre dreams. In his first dream, there were seven very fat cows that came up out of the Nile River. The Nile River was the river in Egypt. And, and they came up out of the river, and they were eaten by seven skinny cows. Can you just envision that for a moment? Here comes a heifer, and here comes a runt of the litter, and comes up behind, and the big fat cow is gone. And what's amazing, after it's gone, the skinny cow still looked skinny. He didn't even burp. There wasn't enough there to satisfy all that he was going through. And, and then he goes back to sleep. Have you ever eaten real well at night and just go right to sleep in the chair? Yes, you did. <laughs> well, in the second dream that he had, when he went back to sleep, he saw a stalk with, the, with seven plump heads of grain on it, and suddenly seven little shriveled heads appeared that devoured the seven plump heads of, gra of grain. And verse 8 tells us what happened next. Notice on the screen or in your Bible. It says, so in the morning his spirit, we're talking about Pharaoh, was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And though Pharaoh was the mightiest man in the land, he was powerless to interpret his dreams. I don't care how many degrees you have after your name. I don't care how many zeros you have in the right-hand side of your checkbook. Wealth and knowledge, there are some things that can only be revealed by the Spirit of God. And the magicians couldn't figure it out. A thousand years of pagan religion history that they all enjoyed in Egypt could not figure out the dreams of what the king wanted. And it's a great example of, of, of a crisis exposing for us the futility of the world and the things that matter most. 
when things really matter the most, it reveals the human heart condition. The human heart condition of how we are void of being able to answer those spiritual things and how we need God. And without divine revelation, human wisdom and power can never discover the way of salvation. As the Bible says, that must come down from God above. And it was about to. And you know, it was at that moment, two years later, I said two stinking years later, the butler remembered Joseph. He said, oh yeah, I know a guy. I know a guy, I got a guy. You know, one of the things I do as your pastor that I get a lot of humor out of is that I'll get calls from you all individually once in a while. And the call always is, Pastor Frank, I've got this need. And everybody says, Pastor Frank knows everyone. Call him first. And, so he, and then I say, hey, I got a guy. <laughs> well, the butler said, I got a guy. I remember a guy by the name of Joseph. And notice in verse 12 on, your, on the screen what it says. There was this guy, a young Hebrew, was there with us. A servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him about our dream, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So just the right moment, God restored the memory, brought back to memory of that butler about Joseph. If he'd remembered earlier Joseph, Joseph may have been set free, and he would have already gone back to his family. If it had been earlier, he might not have even been there. Nowhere near where the king could benefit from him. But as far as Joseph was concerned, he was just being faithful to God when he interpreted those dreams two years earlier. He told them two years earlier, this does not God interpret dreams? This is of God. And now his faithfulness is going to be rewarded in an amazing way. This is better than winning the lottery. Here's the second thing that I want you to see. Joseph gave him the interpretation, the correct interpretation. But beneath that, if you can write fast enough, I want you to write, God gave Joseph the interpretation of those dreams. It wasn't Joseph. After changing his clothes, verse 14 says, he changed his clothes. He's brought in before Pharaoh. Now, they didn't have showers and utilitarian sanitized things in prisons back then. He was probably bearded, long-haired, which would have been custom more of the Hebrews than the Egyptians. But if you ever remember Yul Brenner playing in the Egyptian parts, you know that they're bald-headed. makes Pastor Wayne feel so good. They, they're clean-shaven. And, and it said that, that, that Joseph prepared himself. They're getting ready to take him to Pharaoh. Shaved head, clean face, new clothes. He walks in before Pharaoh. 24 hours earlier, no one could have predicted this. But notice verse 15. I bet they even put on cologne. It says, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And once again, here's Joseph this kid had said, that's right, buddy, get me out of jail. I can do this for you. He didn't try to take any credit. Joseph knew that only God could give true interpretation here. And the interpretation is kind of a good news, bad news situation. First of all, Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of plenty in your land. 
The rains will come, the crops will be full, the stock market's going to do incredible, and everyone will have more than enough to eat. And you know what happens when there's plenty? We spend plenty plus. He says, but then there's going to be, following those seven years, seven years of famine. And the seven bad years, he says, are going to be worse than the seven good years. And then Joseph adds this in verse 32, notice. He said, and the doubling of Pharaoh's Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. In other words, O king, you better take this seriously because God does. God has doubled down on this one. The third thing I want you to write down is that Joseph gave him a wise plan. And beneath that, write down, actually, God gave Joseph a wise plan. And having explained the dream and its meaning, Joseph goes on to suggest that Pharaoh, that Pharaoh, you need to go find a wise and a discerning man to administer the economic affairs of the nation during the seven good years so that one-fifth of the grain can be stored in granaries throughout the land for the entire seven years in preparation. And if you'll do that, two-fifths of that storage for seven years will provide enough sustenance for people to survive during the seven years of famine. But you must prepare for it right now. It was simple, it was clear, but its success depended on finding a man that was the right man that could handle that situation. Pharaoh needed a man who was gifted in administration. He needed a man who was loyal to him and honest in all of his dealings. And obviously, with that much grain being stored all over the place, it would be very easy for people to come in and take advantage of it. Think of any great disaster that's happened in America or around the world, and think of all the people that have pilfered through ingredients and finances that were intended for other people, and the other people never received it. So Pharaoh has to choose very carefully, or the whole plan's going to fall apart. And here's the fourth thing I want you to write down, and that is that Pharaoh gave him a promotion. The truth of the matter is God moved Pharaoh to give Joseph a promotion. It was of God that it happened. Not surprisingly, Pharaoh recognized Joseph. This guy didn't stutter. He didn't uh, 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 hesitate. He gave him the answer. And notice what it says in verse 38 to 40. It says, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Please underline, in whom is the Spirit of God? You have the pagan ruler of the most popular, uh, populated nation on the earth now calling out to holy God, the Hebrew God. He said, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And though Pharaoh was a pagan ruler, he was no dum-dum. He recognized the work of God's spirit when he saw it. And so he makes Joseph vice president, second in command of all of Egypt, which literally made Joseph the second most powerful person on planet Earth in the world at that time. And then he signed the deal in incredible regal fashion. You know, when our presidents and world rulers sign things, they all use these ink pens. And they each pick up a pen, sign a little bit, pick up another pen, sign a little bit more. Well, what he did, Pharaoh gave Joseph the signet ring. It's like having the king's credit card. It's unlimited. Go charge whatever has to be charged. 
He gave him clothing. He didn't want him to wear the jail clothing, even though he was cleaned up, bald-headed, and ready to go. It, it was indication of the high honor that he was going to have. And he gave him a gold chain. That's what I want, a gold chain, blonde hair. You know, just <laughs> say, Pope Frank. No, I, I wouldn't do that. And, and then watch this. He gave him a chariot for transportation. Joseph, anywhere you want to go, you can go. And, and the Bible says he had the soldiers go before him in a chariot and cry, bow down. The New International Version says that they would call out, make way, make way, when Joseph passed so that everyone in Egypt would get the message. This is the man that's coming through. And in verse 43 is the final stroke. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Not so bad for a Hebrew slave, I think. Pretty good, in fact. They even gave him an Egyptian wife named Azeneth, who was the daughter of a pagan priest. I tend to think that the wife came with the job. He's going to say, Joseph, this is just to make you look good politically. You need a wife. Go have some children. Take care of all of our other problems. And all this happened when he was 30 years old. Now, 13 years before this, he was tending flocks with his brothers out in the field. Now he's the prime minister of Egypt. I want to ask you a question. How much of this did Joseph know in advance? Not one single bit of it. How much of it happened by chance? Not one single bit of it. Who was behind it all? God was. 13 years to hear the rest of the story, to see what was going to happen. And sure enough, what happened next is that God caused the years of plenty and the famine to come. And it happened just as Joseph predicted. First of all, the seven years of plenty where there was so much. And you know, heaven, we had those times in America. In the 90s, we had the dot-com, and it just seemed like we couldn't make enough money. We were, we, we were just spending, and it was incredible. And, and even with one-fifth of the grain put into storage, everyone in Egypt had plenty to eat. But eventually, the seven years of famine came. And, and the crops dried up and hunger spread. People really were hungry. People were trying to get peanut butter for protein because there was no meat available. And this is what happened. Notice in verse 55. It says, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do that. And it all happened exactly as Joseph said it would. It happened exactly as God had planned it would. Joseph still couldn't see the big picture, though, of what God had intended at that point. As far as he knew, he was doing God's will as the prime minister of Egypt. Nothing more, nothing less than that. But God had bigger plans in mind. At this point, God gives Joseph two sons. It's a wonderful note of hope. In the story of Joseph from chapter 37 to chapter 50. Notice in verse 50 with me. It says, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The one thing I want to remind you of is that the names of Manasseh and Ephraim are Hebrew names. He had been given an Egyptian name. He married an Egyptian woman, but he didn't forget where he was and who he was. On the outside, he went with the customs of the Egyptians as long as it didn't violate his walk with God. 
But deep inside, Joseph knew who he was and who he belonged to. And it tells us that even though he was an Egyptian on the outside, he still worshipped the God of his fathers on the inside. And he named his first son Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word forget. He even spelled out the meaning so no one could mistake it. He said, God has made me forget all the hardship in my father's house. And it didn't mean that he forgot his family. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I'm not even a part of my family. That individual is no longer part of our family. Joseph wasn't saying that. And we'll prove that in the chapters to come when he's reunited with his family. But it means that God has enabled him to forget the pain of rejection. Have you ever been able to forget the pain of rejection? Have you ever been able to come to a point where you forget the pain of, of being dismissed or turned away or hurt? It, it means God has enabled him that way. There's a wonderful quote that says, we can move on from things we will never get over. We can move on from things that we will never on the inside get over. And it seems like that would be a wise way for us to live. People sometimes glibly say, just get over it. Well, tell me this today. How do you get over envy? How do you get over hatred? How do I get over the fact that my brother-in-law took a gun and killed my sister-in-law? How do you get over murder? How do you get over conspiracy? How do you get over betrayal? How did Joseph get over attempted murder? How does Joseph get over being sold into slavery? You don't ever really get over things like that. Listen to me. Write it down big and plain in your mind. They never go away. It's a mark of your life that you'll always carry. But it doesn't mean that you carry it with a, with a bent to get even or, or, or to be rebellious because of it. They're scars that time doesn't always erase. Joseph will never, as long as he lives, forget what his brothers had done, but he would forgive them. And it's a great advance in our lives when Joseph said, God has made me forget the pain of my past. And the second child he had was Ephraim, which means fruitful. And in the Hebrew, I understand it, it means super fruitful, abundantly fruitful, like Amish of fruitful. He was going to do very, very well. And he says, this land of my affliction, he's talking about all that he went through in Egypt, the false accusation, the unjust imprisonment, the years of total abandonment. Yet in the place where he suffered so much, he now experiences untold blessing. And the order of the names is so important because Manasseh must come before Ephraim. When we go through things, we have to be set from the bitterness before we can appreciate the blessings of God. Someone say amen. We have to get beyond that. And that's because of God's sovereignty. Dr. Ray Pritchard says there's a law of spiritual progress, which is really a series of three statements. And it goes something like this. I can't go back. I can't stay here. I must go forward. I can't go back. I can't stay here. I must go forward. And there was no going back for Joseph. There was no way to undo the damage that was done to him by his brothers. There's no way to undo the lies of Potiphar's wife. And likewise, there's no going back for us in this room. We can't change the events of what happened when we were younger or last week or last month or last year. The only thing left for us to do is to move forward with the grace of God and the strength of God. We all go through hard moments. If your day's been filled with other bad luck, you might, you might vent your frustration sometimes by saying this. When it rains, it pours. When someone says that, those of you that remember may remember the Morton Salt commercial. 
Morton Salt came into existence in 1903. And you may not know this now, but restaurants had a horrible time letting people have salt in the year 1901, 1902, and 1903. Especially when it was damp because it would clump together. And they would literally chisel it out of a block and try to get it in sprinkles and people would take it. And Morton Salt came along. And when they, their statement, when it rains, it pours, technically their salt would run even when it was damp outside because they were the first company to ever add magnesium carbonate. And it let the salt flow through freely. But for the rest of us, in a broader sense, when we say when it rains, it pours, it means when something bad happens, other things usually happen at the same time. For an example, not only did our team lose, but there were three injuries to our best players in the process. When it rains, it pours. Long ago in the 1800s, during the Civil War era time, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, one of the greatest poets of that century, wrote a poem entitled The Rainy Day. It's a beautiful poem. Read it on your own time. But in that poem, there's one little line that says this, Into each life some rain must fall. The truth is we all get hit with the thunderstorm eventually. It's going to happen. It's so easy for that to take place in our own lives. So we come back to the central question of the message, and it is this, How big is your God? Is he big enough for your problems? Is he big enough for your future? Is he big enough for your plan that you have devised in your own mind of what you're going to do? Is he big enough for your pain? Is he big enough for your fears? Is he big enough for whatever you're facing? If he isn't, may I suggest to you this morning that you trade him in for the God of the Bible. That you trade him in for the Lord Jesus Christ, the precious Holy Spirit, who will guide us and be with us. Last evening, there was weeping in Cowtown. You may not know it. There are only two major cities in the United States of America that are referred to as Cowtown. Normally, if someone says Cowtown, they mean you came from some little hickey community. But it is with the badge of honor, the two cities that are called Cowtown are called Cowtown. One of them is Fort Worth, Texas. There's about a half acre of restaurants out there that you could just gorge yourself till you die and go see Jesus. It's where the cattle come in for the, for the last hundred and some years, and it's called Cowtown, Fort Worth, Texas. The other place called Cowtown for the last 100 years, you may not know, happens to be Columbus, Ohio. Because in 1903, the largest, the largest cattle ranch in the world was on U.S. Route 23, just north of Scioto Downs. The largest cattle ranch in the entire world. But last night in Cowtown... Our mighty Buckeyes were taken to the woodshed by that team up north. The tweets, the Twitters, the talk radio pundits were screaming, let's trade our coach in, he's got to go. Let's recruit better players. Probably normal emotional response from crazy sports fans to such a devastating loss. But my friend Scott sent me a social media post. <laughs> From OSU quarterback C.J. Stroud, an outstanding Christian young man that Stroud posted at 7.30 p.m. last night. Notice on the screen. If you want excuses, we don't have those. If you want tears, keep looking. 
priceless are the moments where you are given the opportunity to learn from your defeats, but those are the moments where one can grow the most. And he quotes Romans 5, 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given us. And today, as we close this time together, amen. I want you to take that verse and put it in your mind and walk away with it and put it in your heart and mull over it. I don't know what you're going through today, but some of you, and I know this because of a crowd this large, are going through some very difficult waters. Maybe you feel forgotten. Maybe Joseph really did at times feel that God forgot him. Lord, do you really know that I'm here? Do you know that I'm in prison? Do you know that I'm innocent? They keep telling me I'm guilty, but I didn't do anything. At least he could have been tempted in that regard. But who knows what God may be preparing you for in the next couple days, the next couple months, the next couple years. And just maybe God's using this time to shape you after you've already agreed that he is the sovereign of the universe. And there is no accident that comes in your life that has not first gone through the filter of Almighty God in the throne room of heaven. I mean, we all know that great verse, Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God who are called according to his purpose. We know that. But I wonder how many of us add on the next verse that goes with it in verse 29 that says that we are predestined by God to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the reason God allows us perhaps to go through those trials is that he's still conforming us. He's still shaping us to become conformed like the Evie Turnquist song of decades ago. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It just took a week to make the sun, the moon, and stars. Oh my goodness, how lucky we are that God's still working on me. And I'm cognizant that in all preparation for something else, that God, I'll stand by you and I'll, I will wait for you to get good from this. And I'll go a step beyond that. You'll never rejoice. You'll never rejoice until you start seeing God's hand and let God handle your Potiphar's. Let God handle your brothers. Let God handle the butler, the baker. Let God handle all of those things. Let God handle everything that you're going through. 